Let's bow our hearts in prayer. <laughs> Father, we, uh, we thank you for Jesus. That our sins can be forgiven. That we can, as Romans tells us, go from being hostile in mind towards you because our mind is set on the flesh to being adopted children and co-heirs of Christ. And Lord, we, we have the, the table set before us to remind us of the Last Supper that Jesus had with the disciples. And, and Father, as we are digging into the text we have this morning, I pray that we would view it through the lens of the cross. That with the table set before us, everything that we look at this morning, Lord, would be done so with, with remembering that, that Jesus' body was broken for us and that His blood established a new covenant by which we Gentiles could enter. A covenant for all nations to come to God. And Lord, we pray that that new covenant would have a deep, lasting, and continual effect on our marriages. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are a lot of voices that, that seek to define marriage, at least in part. And, and uh, one of the more enlightening voices may be Twitter. Um, so here are a few definitions or, or descriptions of marriage from, from the lovely world of Twitter. Marriage is just texting each other, do we need anything from the grocery store a bunch of times until one of you dies? <laughs> Another one is marriage is essentially two people taking turns pushing down the top of the kitchen garbage so they don't have to take it out. One person tweets, only marriage can turn a missing spatula into an act of war. <laughs> and, and maybe my favorite one is, call me old-fashioned, but I believe marriage should be between one person who hates pickles and another person who's willing to eat that pickle. Um, this is entertaining. It contains some accuracy, but... Uh, it would be hard to, to base a, a good premarital session on, on what Twitter has to say about uh, marriage and what you can squeeze into 140 characters. Um, because marriage, after all, this is, this is complex. It's, it's a God-ordained covenant that two people enter into. Um, it, it, this morning, I'm not going to give a comprehensive definition of marriage. I'm not even going to try but I, I hope that as we, as we open up God's Word, that, that truths about marriage will be declared. Uh, but before we go to the, the truth of Jesus' effect on marriage, it's, it's good to first look at some lies that sometimes we believe about marriage. And I, I think the biggest is contained in, in three little words that seem to end every Disney movie. Happily ever after. Right? Like, oh, happily, they went and lived happily ever after. And we grow up as kids thinking, well, I can't wait for happily ever after. And then we get to being adults and thinking, 
this doesn't feel like happily ever after. And, and the, the reality is when you put two sinners together in a home, happily ever after probably isn't the result. And, and we need to adjust our, our expectations. I, um, you, you've heard me say it before. There's really only two problems with any marriage. One is the husband and the other is the wife. Aside from that, you have happily ever after, right? The, the other lie, and this one is, is much more tragic, is that marriage doesn't need to be lifelong. And, and that the Bible doesn't say it needs to be lifelong. And in reality, Scripture says that God hates divorce. Um, it, but it grieves my heart. And I've seen people do it time and time again. And sometimes they even say, I feel like God is leading me to divorce. God is not leading you to there. Yes, there are times in Scripture where, where God permits divorce. Two particularly come to mind where there's adultery and the other is when a non-believing spouse leaves a believing spouse. But those, while they may be grounds for divorce, are also grounds for the Gospel to come in and, and change everything. And there are grounds for forgiveness and there are grounds for biblical reconciliation. Another lie, and this pertains to marriage, is that the Bible doesn't really say you, you shouldn't sleep around outside of marriage. The Bible doesn't say that sex outside of marriage is wrong. The Bible does. The Bible says you are made for holiness, not for sexual morality. The Bible says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that you should get married so you don't burn with passion. The biblical blessing of marriage from Genesis 2 is that the two have become one flesh. Paul brings that up again in Ephesians 5. And in 1 Corinthians, he uses it as a reason to not practice sexual morality. But what all three of these have in common is that human emotion is incredibly strong. And human emotion leads us to places where Scripture warns us not to go. And, and one of the, as we talk about marriage and all that marriage affects, all that marriage entails, our single lives affect our married lives. All of that, emotion is such a driving force. And one of my prayers for myself, one of my prayers for us as a church is that we would see God's Word and submit to God's Word despite where our emotion wants to lead us. So many times we hear the phrase, follow your heart, just do what you need to do to be happy. And we, when we say that, we also need to realize my version of happiness has a, has a great degree of brokenness to it. And the fall of sin and my sinful nature affects how I perceive happiness. And so I need God to come in and redeem that. And I, my, my greatest need, our greatest need, is to walk with the Lord. Not to find an earthly version of happiness. 
And maybe that's what you need to hear this morning, is that your earthly version of happiness needs to be subjected to God's Word. But as we get ready to talk about marriage, as we get ready to talk about these these words that Paul uses, we need to realize that God's Word is inspired by Him. It's useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, admonishing, and training up in righteousness. And so let's sit under God's Word. Let's humble ourselves to God and to His Word and filter out a lot of the cultural jargon that infects our marriage as opposed to letting Jesus effect our marriage. Amen? As pastors here at Westchester, our desire for ourselves and for you, for for you who are married and for you who are longing to be married is that you would have a rich, deep, joy-filled, soul-satisfying marriage. That's our desire. However, doing marriage contrary to God's intention doesn't get you there. Seeking fleshly answers to your marital problems, which may in some way, shape, or form be spiritual problems, the fleshly answers aren't going to get you there. So with all human relationships, especially with marriage, we need to remember, we are all created in God's likeness. We are all fallen in sin, and we are all in need of redemption. And even once we're redeemed, even once we've we've come into salvation, to saving faith with Christ, there's a continual need for sanctification. And as we look at the chapters of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption... Within redemption, that really long chapter in Scripture that goes from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21, there's a whole lot of sub-chapters on sanctification in there. And so we we need to keep that in mind and, and for the effect of Christ to be continual so that we can be refashioned and reshaped to be more and more like Him. And an essential aspect to a thriving, joy-filled, soul-satisfying marriage is for God to be shaping you. And, and part of that is realizing the goal of our marriage. The goal of, of marriage is not happily ever after. It's God's glory. That God would be worshipped in your glory. Re- remember, a couple weeks ago, we were in Colossians 3, 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you think it's a coincidence that this precedes marriage? That this precedes one of the most personal relationships you will ever have? Whatever you do in word or deed, do it in the name of Jesus. And so as you look at your marriage, as you look at the interactions you have with your spouse, some of them that, that are so personal, it's only the two of you. Some of them where it's, it's your thought life as much as what's said, because if you're like me, you tend to overthink things. Within that, have every word and deed done in the name of Jesus to the glory of God the Father with thanks to Him. We're going to, for this morning, 
We're going we're gonna to step from Colossians to Ephesians to a passage that parallels what Pastor Josh went through last week. So open up to Ephesians 5. That our marriages in word and deed should be done in the name of Jesus and thanks to God the Father. And what I want us to see here is, is what it is to have a Christ-affected, God-glorifying marriage. A Christ-affected, God-glorifying marriage. And what we see in Ephesians 5 is a Christ-affected, God-glorifying marriage is empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the errors we make in our study of Scripture is we say, oh, I want to read what the Bible has to say about marriage. So we jump right to where it just talks about husbands and wives and we, we fail to realize sometimes in that that this is part of a letter, and so there, there's a train of thought going here. And if we come right to verse 22 where it talks about wives, we miss the train of thought. And so let's jump on and let's look at where Paul is going. In verse 15, Paul is encouraging the people of Ephesus, live wisely, make the best use of time. Don't be foolish. Don't be an idiot. And so then we get to verse 18, uh, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of Paul's teaching strategies, which is very clear here, is to use opposing instructions to teach a, a, a third thing. So he's saying, don't be, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit. Now, why are those two opposing? Well, when you're around a drunk, it's very clear that that person is not thinking for themselves. The whiskey, the wine, the tequila, whatever it is, is thinking for them. And they are so changed by the alcohol that they're not themselves and they're not able to operate as themselves. And Paul's saying, don't be drunk, which is debauchery, be filled with the Spirit. And where we learn about being filled from the Spirit of being drunk is that, that you would be so filled with the Spirit that it is a Spirit moving through you, that it's not you, it's not your natural person, but the Holy Spirit of God is moving in and through you and so that it's evident that there's godly things happening because the Holy Spirit of God is what's doing that. You're, the best thing you can do as a husband or wife, the very best thing you can do for a marriage as a husband or wife is walk closely with the Lord. To not quench the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. And let God move in and through you as you love your spouse, as you walk with your spouse, as you go through times of sickness and health, good times and bad with your spouse, to do so walking closely with the Lord. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody of the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is sounding a lot like Colossians 3 here. And then he says this, and he's, he's speaking to a church, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is is a mutual, as, as Paul's getting ready to talk about marriage to, to Ephesus, he's telling them you need to be mutually serving one another while you're praising God and being filled with the Spirit. Tim Keller says, only if you have learned to serve others by the power of the Holy Spirit will you have the power to face the challenges of marriage. 
And as we in a few minutes move into what Paul says about husbands and wives, your spouse's greatest need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to walk closely with God. And you are not the Holy Spirit of your marriage. So as, as we're digging into Ephesians 5, 22 to 24 and talking about wives and the honor and respect, husbands, you're not the Holy Spirit. As we move past that for verses 25 through 33, wives, you're not the Holy Spirit. Your elbow is not the gift of the Spirit. <laughs> Despite what you think, it's not, it, it's, it may be great at like, like to stop snoring, it, it's not the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit do His job in the life of your spouse and in the heart of your spouse. And as you address one another, realize that God can and ought to be glorified by your interactions. This is true of the church. It's very true in the marital relationship. Tim Keller also says, Husbands and wives must give themselves up for one another. That does not destroy the exercise of authority within human relationships, but it does radically transform it. Paul says, submit to one another. The words he's about to say in describing the husband and wife relationship does not contradict this. He's not saying submit to one another except in marriage. And in that case, and then goes on from there, no, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be praising God, be giving thanks to Him, and be submitting to one another. But this, this, doesn't, this mutual submission to one another, this isn't a fleshly thing. This is a Holy Spirit thing. This is, this is what happens when you let the Holy Spirit be a driving force within your marriage, within your heart. It's then that you're able to have a God-like humility as you approach one another even in times of conflict and difficulty, and especially in times of conflict and difficulty. Marriage is much more about your holiness than it is your happiness. The goal of marriage is not your happiness. Although joy and happiness are often present in a marriage that is the Lord's and that glorifies God, Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit, so as you submit to one another, as you submit to God, don't be surprised if joy comes out of that. Well, we need to realize that your marriage is not your marriage, it's God's marriage. And God wants to use your marriage for the sanctifying of both of you for the discipleship of whatever children you may have, for the discipleship of those around you. Your spouse is your primary partner and support in ministry. Marriage has a mission, and that mission is not you. So let God do His work by being empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Christ-affected, God-glorifying marriage is empowered by the Holy Spirit. It is also shaped by and for Christ. <clears throat> let's, 
Let's go on reading in Ephesians 5. I'm just going to start in verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of the body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Our marriages ought to be shaped by and for Christ. And this first of all takes the shape of honor. When I uh, have the opportunity to do premarital counseling, we'll we'll go to Ephesians 5. And and we'll we'll read all this together. Um... And then, then I will look at the woman and say, from this passage, what is your job description? And one time I, I had a, a young couple, and, and, uh, and I, I knew this couple pretty well. And, and the young lady, she goes, well, I, I need to honor, and I, I should really listen to him. And I, well, what does the text say? Well, I need to honor. I, no, what does the text say? What, what is the word? She did not want to say it. She said, I don't like this. I, I know. But what does God's word tell you? Well, it says I need to submit. And how are you to submit as, as the church does to Christ? Pastor Josh gave us some really helpful words last week in what submission in a marriage is and isn't. And it's not being the yes woman for this guy. It's not just saying yes to everything he does. It's supporting where he, is, he feels God has taken you. It's supporting his walk with Christ. It's supporting his headship in the house. But it's not letting him walk all over you. I know it's not always easy. Nothing in marriage really is. But we go back to verse 21. Submitting to one, or one another. But he doesn't end there. He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so my question, wives, is this. Is Christ worthy of this for you? Because sometimes us husbands are real jerks. Sometimes we're incredibly selfish. Sometimes we are so nearsighted we can't see the dishes in the sink that need to be done. Or things of much more importance. Is 
So I'm not asking, is your husband worthy of this? Because that, that answer changes based on the day. What I want to know is, is Christ worthy of this? Are you willing to have a marriage shaped by Christ and for Christ because Christ Himself is so worthy? There's, there's part of this that... Um, that is based more on the role of husband than sometimes on the individual. There's an office being held by this guy in your home. Are you willing to respect the office of husband? To submit to that. And while doing so, sometimes you really have to trust the Lord. I think the video we had this morning gave a great example where, where Pat said, oh, the way he loves me, it's just really easy to submit to him. And I rejoice for that. That's a great picture. That's something for us to aspire to, husbands. That we would love our wives in such a way that they say, well, it's easy. Because I know he's, he's leading in a way that's, that's just really loving for me. So I can follow that. But it's not always easy. And we need to keep Christ as the objective when it's not easy. Verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This is not a partial thing, but it's also good to recognize that marriage is not a partial thing. That there's no part of your marriage that's outside of, there's no part of your life once you're married that's outside of the other person. I understand, like there's, there's work if, if, if my wife came to work with me every day because no part of our life was separate, she'd just be really bored. And I'd just sit there, read. It's not very exciting. Um, but there's not to be a part of your life that's, that you're hiding from your husband or from your wife. You guys are one. You're one flesh. You've, you've come together. You've become one. And that's something to really think about as you look at your marriage, as you're considering getting married. To really consider that. that boy, this isn't a, uh, we're going to be married, but I'll have my Wednesdays. No, your whole life is together. Paul ends this with, with wife uh, in, in verse 33. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. We, we seem to have no problem with unconditional, mar- uh, unconditional love within a marriage. That you love each other no matter what. Even if this person's a jerk, you love them. But the idea of unconditional respect garners some pushback. But this is where I urge you. Are you willing to submit yourself to the text first and foremost? Are you willing to submit yourself to the Lord first and foremost? In the book Love and Respect, where it's pointed out that men have a great need for respect. There was a survey done, and, and uh, it asked men, would you, would you rather be, be loved by everyone in the office and not respected, or would you rather be respected by all of them and loved by none? And over, I think it was over 85% of men chose the latter. I'd rather be respected by everyone and just have no friends. 
Women, there's a real need in us for that respect. I can't pinpoint it all. I just know it's there. But Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says you need to respect your husband. And I would encourage you to to view his need for respect similar to your need for love. The key is respect. Your husband's need respect. Speak well of him. Both in front of him and behind his back. You may not think this matters, but it matters a lot. Thank him for what he does. Thank him for the chores around the house. Thank him for the income he brings into the home. Thank him for fixing things, or, or at least trying. Giving it the old college try. Thank him for listening when he does that well. Thank him for being the dad that he is. Respect his needs. Know what his needs are. Know where you fit into those. Know that his needs are very different than yours and respect that difference. Respect his pursuit of God. Pursue your husband. Pray for him. And don't just pray for him secretly. When he's having a hard day, Stop and stop him and just say, can I pray for you real quick? And take his hand and pray with him in that moment. So I mentioned that I've, I go through this, this passage with premarital couples. And I had, I had one couple where the, the woman really didn't know much of Scripture and the, the husband knew quite a bit. And I'm, I'm going through this part with the wife I'm saying, now what does the text say? And she goes, well, it says submit. And the husband is like, but you need to finish the text. You need to get to my job. I'm like, we will. He goes, you need to get to my job. So I came to the husband. I said, what's your job? Because it's not just honor, but it's also sacrificial, sanctifying love. Love as husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So I asked the husband, what does this mean that, that, that he gave himself up? Well, he died on the cross. I'd die for my wife. There's not a guy in here who's not thinking, oh, I'd, I'd take a bullet in a minute. Second, I'd, I'd jump in front. Yeah, I'll be the hero. Great. <laughs> Will you suffer for your wife? Will you humble yourself? If, how many of you husbands... If your wife desired to go to the opera, would do it. (laughs) To not just die, but to suffer and to humble ourselves for our wives' betterment. Because we can fall into a trap when we read this. And that trap is this, that Jesus only died for the church. That Jesus was in heaven, full splendor, full majesty. One day he came down and he died. But that's, Jesus' death is significant. We can't get past it. His resurrection is monumental. But Jesus did more for the church than die and rise again. Jesus. 
Jesus went from the throne to the manger. He left heavenly wealth and royalty for poverty and being born in a no-name town, being visited by shepherds, having to be taken away as a young child to Egypt so he didn't get killed. He left the praise of angels for the rejection of people. He embraced the fullness of humility, assuming the role of a foot washer. Husbands, I'm not asking, are you willing to die for your wives? I'm asking, and I believe the text is asking, are you going to lay yourself down for her? Are you going to lay yourself down to build her up the same way Christ did for the church? Are you going to lovingly, patiently, and humbly serve her? And as I'm doing this, this is very much one of those times where I may have one finger pointed out, but I have three pointed back at myself. Because all too often I find where I've missed the opportunities to do that and I now have an opportunity to repent. Husbands, be humble and build her up. It says he gave himself up for her, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Here we have a a, a quick vision of the the wedding supper of the Lamb where it's Jesus and the church and and it's the, the image of a wedding, the bride adored in splendor. He might present herself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing as she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, in the same way you should love your wives. Love her as yourself. Love her as your own body. Do not be harsh, husbands. Do not be controlling. You are not the king of your house. Christ is. You are to nourish her and build her. Her up. She is God's daughter. Treat her with that level of, of reverence. Have reverence for your wife, not as an idol, but love her as Christ does the church. Nourish her, build her up. Here's the, here's, here's the beautiful thing of this. Paul has just said, he said, be filled with the Holy Spirit, praising God, submitting to one another. Wives, submit to your husband. We have the wife and the husband. Wives, submit to your husband as as the church does to Christ. Husbands, lay yourselves down. Give yourselves up for your wife as Christ did for the church. And when we live out Ephesians 5, we have a wife submitting, a husband laying himself down. A wife submitting, a husband laying himself down. And it is a race to the bottom of the relationship. It is two people lovingly, in a Holy Spirit way, Holy Spirit filled, trying to outserve one another. And it sounds so simple, doesn't it? 
And everything's simple until sin creeps in. Pride is a vicious enemy to your marriage. The unwillingness to confess sin, the unwillingness to confess wrongness, the unwillingness to apologize, the unwillingness to extend forgiveness, the unwillingness to see the perspective of the other person in your marriage, the unwillingness to let God shape you, pride will destroy your marriage. Humble yourself. And leave and cleave. Therefore man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. This passage comes from Genesis 2. And right before this, God told Adam, I'm going to make you a helper. And helper is not made. She's not there. God didn't say, I'm going to make someone to do your dishes and vacuum. So I'm going to make you a helper. Someone you are dependent on. The same word for helper is used to describe the Holy Spirit in the upper room discourse. And some of you guys are like, I get it. Like my wife leaves and all of a sudden it's like ramen and and filth. Like I forget what hygiene is. Like I just don't know these things anymore once she's gone. Like we are so... God has given you this woman to be your helper, to be someone who's going to get you by. Make sure you make it to retirement. I don't know. Wives, this is not a subordinate role. God has made you because your husband needs you. And he's leaving his father and mother and coming to you. And this is, this is a, a picture, in, in a lot of ways, a picture of dependence. And they become one flesh. The key here, husbands, is love. Love your wife. Bring her flowers. Speak kind words to her. Take time to hear about her day. All of it. Touch her heart and mind. Set aside yourself. Set aside your desires for the moment, your year, your career, and set aside all that to make sure she is a clear priority for you. Build her up. Look for opportunities for her to succeed. Put her in a position to thrive in your home, with your parenting, in her career, in her aspirations. Allow for and encourage her to grow. Allow for and encourage her to have ministry within the body of Christ, to worship God. Lower yourself to build her up. Help her. This will look differently for each of you. Help her to love God. Help her to grow in her faith. Your wife's needs are very different than your own. Know your wife. Know her needs. Love her. Encourage her. Lay yourself down for her. I have a few practical tips as we look to marriage. And we're, we're going to start wrapping up and moving to communion. Humble yourself. I talked about already. Your pride is a great threat and enemy to your marriage. Another thing is just know your role. 
within marriage. I don't want you to come away from this and say, oh, husband, you're not laying yourself down for me. You know, Jesus would let the wife have all the covers. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to read Scripture. If you're a woman, read everything the Bible says to wives. Seek to apply that. Read what it says for husbands and pray for your husband in that direction. And husbands, the same way. Read what God's Word says to you. This is not a career option. This is God telling you what to do in your marriage. And then pray for your wife. Invest in your marriage through reading. There's some great books out there to help you. Love and Respect is one. The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller is really helpful. Another book is When Sinners Say I Do. Sacred Marriage is another book I would encourage you to read. And in trying to figure out who loves first or who respects first, in Love and Respect, one of the things he says and trying to build this cycle of, are you going to love so that, you know, respect is reciprocated and vice versa. He says the mature one goes first. I'll let you figure that out. (laughs) My wife showed me an article a number of years ago called Pouring the First Glass of Wine. And it was a a woman in, in her marriage, they were really frustrated, and her husband had this habit. He'd get home from work, he'd pour a glass of Chardonnay and read the paper. And for whatever reason, that drove her nuts. She just found it so annoying. And one day she had had a really long day. She was really frustrated. He was staying, he had a busy season at work and had to work late. And she was so frustrated. And she was going to bed before he was home. And she thought, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So she, he came home to a sleeping wife who had poured a glass of Chardonnay and set it next to the newspaper. Initiate kindness in your marriage. Let God be God. Let Him be the one who changes hearts. And look to Christ. Now there is room for accountability in marriage. There is a time, wives, to say, husband, you're being very unloving. This this action that you did was incredibly hurtful. And husbands, it's okay to say, Honey, when you did X, I just felt incredibly disrespected. It was really hurtful. But look to Christ. Look to Christ. Because he's he's the basis for all this. He pursued the church. He, He saved us out of his grace. We need the grace of God in our marriages. What would we do without it? He laid himself down for us based on who he is, not on the church. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Base your love and respect on Christ and who he is. And as we remember what Christ did, I pray that it moves us to a lot of things. I pray that it moves us to the confession of our sin. I pray that it moves us 
to the extension of God's grace and God's love, not only in our community, but especially in our homes. And I pray that as as I look to this, I'll, I'll continue to be moved to ways that I can lay myself down for my family, for my bride. As we, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, and we always urge you to confess your sin as you get ready to partake, and I encourage you to do that. But I also encourage you to remember what Jesus did and what he is now doing in building up the church to present the church to himself. And take time while you're holding the elements to reverently thank God for that, to pray to learn from his experience, to learn from his example, to learn from what he has done and what he is doing now. As those who are coming up to help serve us, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for this day. We, We thank you for Christ. That he laid himself down for us. That he humbled himself. That he became a man. Found in appearance as as a man. And he lived a humble life. And he did his ministry that he humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And God, that you've given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of, of God. Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for establishing a new covenant. Thank you for having your body broken so our sins can be forgiven. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.